welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Tom Mills. Hello. The reason Dan's laughing is we were having a conversation as to who's going to do the intro, and there's some reason there's incredible pressure as to whether <laughs> it was going to go well. But I'm relatively pleased with that. Um, how are you doing, Dan? I'm I'm doing okay. Um, you know, there's one or two one or two things going on that are um, have made this year quite interesting, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about. But I'm doing fine. It's we're recording on the day before Christmas Eve. Um, Christmas Eve Eve. And it's beginning to feel a lot like March. Mm. <laughs> it is. In the sense Another that... Apocalyptic yeah. nightmare and, and no food on the shelves. The thing uh, is, with the March version of where we were now, was at least there was a sort of novelty to the dystopian creep. Yeah. Um, and and it's now like, it's just like, oh, this again, uh, <laughs> except for 70% worse this time. Exactly. It's um, it's just a sequel where they've said, yeah, but what if what if we do exactly the same thing, but the virus is more infectious? What if time? we do exactly the same thing, but this time Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. Knock down the Christmas movie. So, yeah, they've turned it into a Christmas blockbuster. Um, well, look, Dan, I'm going to address the elephant in the room before we kick off, which is like people are probably wondering where the hell we've been and what we're doing back. Yeah, this is an important issue. Um, as as our keen listeners will have noticed, we haven't really been uh, a, a regular fixture during the last year, um, and I think it's fair to say that yeah, the the uh, the pandemic has knocked us out in terms of our ability to record. Um, and you, Tom, Tom, I mean, this is looking behind the curtain, but Tom has a has a, a young family he's looking after. I have a um, uh, like a constant ability to to feel unwell and tired, which hip happened a lot over the summer as well. I was kind of knocked out over the summer for various reasons. So I we hadn't had really been Say again. I also had that ability. That gets... yeah, we're both. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I feel constantly exhausted. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, another piece behind the curtain which we won't dwell on too much is just like my capacity to sort of complain about being overworked and never having time to do anything, which like is it, so ubiquitous I just get bored of hearing myself say it so I may as well commit it to the recording so I can yeah, I <laughs> play it back <laughs> every conversation Dan and I have but we do have conversations time and they do, there's usually a few minutes which I spend complaining about uh, lack of free time anyway I don't know I don't know if I'm apologizing to the listeners or just providing context or or whatever but no. anyway um I guess we don't have to apologize but we hope we hope you're all well um it's nice to be back, which I guess, like, I wanted to call this a Christmas special, um, and I think you didn't, Dan, but whatever, it's Christmas time, um, and so as far as I can say, it's the Christmas special, I just called it that, so there's nothing you can do about it, but what yeah, we thought we'd do, we'd, you know, it's just, we just wanted to talk a little bit about um, what's been going on in the last, well, months, year since we recorded last, which is obviously a lot, um, so we're just going to pick out a few bits and bobs, really and uh, try and, insofar as you can with any kind of conversation, catch up with uh, where we were and uh, check in with you all. So first of all, I mean, we've already mentioned the pandemic, but I guess a good place to start really is is impressions, Dan, of very general impressions of, of media's performance in the, in the last year, like particularly in, in relation to COVID. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for like my first sense, when, like when things started to go get really weird in March, one of the things that struck me was the sense that, oh yeah, we do have a national broadcaster. And that's really, that's a really interesting asset to have. And it's quite, in a sense, quite a reassuring asset. Because mm. if you had a means to communicate to the nation with messages like, you know, wash your hands, stay at home, protect the NHS and so on. So there was a sense that there was a, a messaging operation that kind of worked. Um, and, it, and it was a sort of insight into what, the role that the BBC must have played, say, during the Second World War, where yeah. no one knew what the hell was going on at the beginning. But you had a you had someone like on the radio explaining stuff to you, which may or may not have been correct, but it was at least like it all kind of hung together. It's all um, like a place to go, you know, psychologically, isn't it? I mean, I think the BBC really did make a big deal out of that. You know, they saw an opportunity because if the people people think back to when this had happened, I mean, the government really had been quite hostile to the BBC even before um, Johnson's election, and you know, the BBC felt under threat and they obviously saw an opportunity here. In fact, they were very open about it, like the BBC in their own statements talking about how important they were in this kind of context, you know, that they really felt a kind of sense of national purpose, didn't they? And the other thing that you saw was like figures of engagement. So like one of the, there was a lot of publicity around, around like, you know, the promotion of the importance of public service broadcasting, people talking about the extent to which people went to the BBC in exactly the way you're saying, like, as as a sort of the place for official information yeah. um, i think it's that it's that combination or like fam familiarity built up over a, lo a long period we've all to some extent in this country grown up with the bbc however old we are been a f sort of feature of our life and that collision of the incredibly familiar and reassuring with a condition of like emergency in some sense yeah. uh, is a very is a very potent um, it's a very potent thing for an institution to be able to, to be able to draw on. In contrast to the conduct of, of many senior figures in the government, who uh, like immediately started frantically um, extemporizing and and um, uh, just coming up with like wildly kind of um, un, unjustifiable claims. I remember Han Hancock telling um, telling the uh, the, the you know news audiences that he'd been speaking with supermarkets about the need to sort of maintain supplies and then about a day, you know a day later the heads of the supermarket said we have not had any conversations with the government about supermarket supplies and it was just like you people are just making stuff up to sort of sound like you know what you're doing and it's, it's as though bizarre, you spend... it? this, is, this is where i think they get their extraordinary confidence and confidence from these sorts of people is that if there's no consequence to anything that you say yeah. right then the, the thing that makes you nervous when you're making public statements i think is if i don't know everything about everything I could get something wrong you know and for most normal human beings that inspires a certain degree of humility if not like extreme anxiety about saying the wrong thing but like if you just don't give a shit and you can just say anything that just pops into your head that must be incredibly liberating does not it <laughs> so you're like yeah I've spoken to supermarkets and like no he hasn't done that and you're like well yeah. doesn't yeah. matter now I said that yesterday I, mean, I, <laughs> I said I did so yeah. that's sort of the way like doing it and it's that it's oh, that exactly. sense of saying it saying it in the media makes it true that yeah. i think is again it's a feature of um you know johnson we could talk we're just going to talk more about the relationship between journalism and and right-wing politics uh, as we go through to, to you know tonight but it's but it's a really striking thing it's like saying it 
doesn't saying it on the radio or on television doesn't make it true but they but they but they as you say they just act as though it's true and then they just keep going and and it's it's an I mean, it is an extraordinary persistent feature of this so. he's been quite an interesting well i think interesting is probably stretching it but like I, he's been very prevalent hasn't he during during the crisis and like he just they wheel him out because he just it doesn't matter what he does he just seems in a in a sense sort of I wouldn't say he's unflappable because sometimes he just seems like he's all over the shop, but he's just, he'd just go out and just do it again and again and again. Um, yeah. I mean, he is irrepressibly awful. Right? Yeah. He's one of the, he's one of the real hate figures that have emerged for me over the last year. I really do loathe the guy. Um, and I mean, it is, you know, we're now in a situation where our transport infrastructure is in the hands of a minister who's literally a guy who used to sell get rich quick schemes on, on the internet. You know, under a false name, right? Grant Chaps had a fake name that he used to kind of try and scam money with, right? And this is it's like it's like if you were writing a drama about a government and you said, Yeah, yeah, okay, what about if the Minister of Transport was like a scam artist from online and with a fake name? You'd be like, guys, this is really you're really pushing it here. It's a bit kind of broad brush, right? And it's like, no, what about the guy who's overseeing Brexit? He's like a Brussels correspondent who's just to make stuff up about Brussels. <laughs> It's like, hang on a minute, who the fuck is scripting this? Because yeah, it's like a proper, you know, a proper comedy writer would be like, guys, can you tone it down a little bit? Because it just seems like it's, it's too easy. Bit, it's a bit crude, isn't it? Like, um, yeah. you need you need a certain sort of nudge and wink, or you need to give your audience something to sort of get like a subtext. You can't just be as Yeah, you've got to make them do a bit like... of work, right? <laughs> yeah. You've got to make, make them work for the joke a bit, rather yeah. than just having these fucking cartoons. Yeah. Um, which reminds yeah, I mean, me, so they, the sorry, go on. I was going to say it reminds me of a particularly bleak moment in the early days of lockdown, where there was a sort of audience-free edition of the news quiz on Radio Four, and it was like four people desperately trying to sound sort of amusing about current affairs while this weird sort of pandemic is just kicking off, and like deaths were kind of kind of creeping up to the first sort of peak, and it was just it felt like that whole world of have I got news for you and the news quiz and like this sort of chummy comedy it's just sort of you know it's just reached the end of its end of the line really it's like this isn't funny anymore guys you're not you're not and I and I know that it's quite I mean it's just there is a there are satirists working on and left Twitter, who were just like reliably more funny and we've talked quite a bit on the podcast about satire, and this wasn't something which we discussed before. But has is the spitting image relaunch? Has that was that in the period that we've been off air? I think yeah, because actually that is symbolic of exactly what you're talking about. Because I saw some things on uh was it um the ian duncan smiths that twitter handle that did something like basically just did yeah. like remixes of splitting image and made it much more funny than the original splitting image which yeah. was like god it was just like i mean i know you know we're just rehashing takes from twitter from like months ago but it really was dire um yeah, yeah that's what that's what people want <laughs> that's what exactly what they want to hear like we could just read our tweets out exactly um the extended version of the show just scroll through our twitter feed <laughs> 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 timeline yeah that's like um but that's bonus content 
bonus content. But it's true that you know the, the the point is that satire, like splitting image in its original incarnation, whatever else it was doing, it was trying to wound, right? It was trying yeah. its best to wound these these figures, and you can say they, you know, they it it didn't didn't sort of draw blood, but at least they were having a bloody go, right? I think now, I think if you look back on it, it does feel like. I mean, I wouldn't say edgy in the sense that, like, politically edgy, but it's definitely just like, that's quite, you know, like, with them sort of joking about, like, um, you know, taking money off people and, like, you know, there's, there's just a, there is a contemptuousness in the original yeah. spitting image that you just don't feel. And I think it's it's very, um, it is quite striking. I mean, Juliet Jakes has written about this a bit in, like, the, the shift in political satire, and it is an enduring sort of, I suppose topic for the podcast and that's something we're both interested in but it's very striking isn't it if you look at like the new um spitting image like how like tame it is it's just like you know it, it's a bit like I guess like there, there's a bit of this in like um things like Saturday Night Live that I'm not so familiar with which is just sort of like oh we take these people from politics and we sort of make them do fun things and it's kind of funny because they're politicians like doing stuff like it's, it's funny isn't it George you know George Osborne well, George Osborne. it's funny like Boris Johnson going and doing a bong at university that's funny you know because yeah, he's the yeah, prime yeah. minister Ed Paul's going on Strictly Come Down yeah, yeah. <laughs> well exactly it's just like you know that that sort of like lampooning of just like oh we're having fun and we're having fun with people doing yeah. impressions of politicians and it's just like oh my god like but the thing is with that it's like you know, we could talk critically, I suppose, about like satire until the cows come home. But I mean, ultimately, was it funny? Did anybody laugh at it? I mean, I, I very much doubt it. But it, it was just a grim, grim spectacle, I think, spitting image. And like, you know, have I got news for you? I mean, I do wonder how, when, when, when was that last funny? And was it ever really edgy? I mean, I do remember thinking that like, there was a certain spikiness to it at one stage with like, um, you know Paul Merton in the 90s but he just sort of gave up years ago like you know yeah, he just no, sort of he looks a bit lost yeah no, think, for like a decade yeah he's more. been they've been phoning it in um and it but it relies on a kind of like a cozy consensus that you know I suppose you know between 97 and 2003 say there was this sort of moment where it was like Oh, it's we're all reasonable people. We all agree about stuff, and and it and it's sort of trapped in that moment in a way where we can all have a laugh together. And it was always an illusion. There was, there was always a deep antagonism. It should be a deep antagonism between politicians and anyone who's paying attention, right? <laughs> like anyone who's actually seeing what they're doing should be able to go, "Oh my God, these people are, are like grotesques. They're absurd. They're disgusting. I've got to somehow like make their monstrosity clear, right? It's always there. And like you look at, you know, you look at someone like Peter Cook. Peter Cook hated politicians. Like, he despised them. And he was like, in person, he would treat them with absolute contempt. There's a famous story when he was doing Beyond the French, Harold Macmillan came into the theater to watch it and have a good laugh at the impression mm. of Harold Macmillan that Peter Cook did. And Peter Cook was on stage impersonating Harold Macmillan, trying to be as horrible and rude as possible to Harold Macmillan while he was in the audience, right? He at least had the balls to do it. He didn't go, oh yes, isn't it funny that I'm doing a, like, no, you're my enemy, I hate you, right? That's my job. Yeah. And this seems to have completely passed people by. That, that yeah, I mean, I think to a degree, like, I don't know what it is. Like, I, sp I suppose like there's always an even in that comedy in the, like the 1990s, like 
because like cynicism is kind of characterized, I suppose, like, you know, that kind of 1990s kind of moment like that that was sort of the the, the kind of like cultural default I think that you know, things didn't really matter anymore and some people were sort of slightly mournful of that and politicians are kind of you know that they're, they're still doing what they're doing and they're still doing bad things and they're probably incompetent but like it doesn't quite matter in any sort of like sense of committedness and in a way like when you think of like someone like Ian Hislop in terms of his kind of background and his politics you know that's kind of the perfect position for him because he was obviously he was must have been like that in that sort of let's call it like ideological age of politics but once that sort of post-ideological age for a short time kind of hits in that's that's perfect for him and I think for those people like they you know there's a sort of cynicism but like it it does rely on the idea that politics doesn't matter in some sense that these people you know they they can be sort of um they, they, they can be corrupt and they can be like um you know personally unpleasant and they can be disingenuous and all these things but that kind of fits in with like what the politicians are really doing you know and you know this brings us back to um Boris Johnson you know why was he so comfortable on, on have I got news to you it's because you know he saw politics as a game in the same way as as, as they all did you know like fundamentally was there any clash there does did Boris Johnson like you know, have a political project for that stage. Well, you know, he was like this guy who supposedly wrote, you know, two columns um, the, about Brexit and decided which one he was going to go for. Like, he is, he is the very sort of, yeah, political monster that, in a way, that that by making this sort of cynicism into comedy, they're just that it just becomes blunt. I think, but there's the, in terms of like the smug comedy we get now, I think it's just like the, you know. So for certain people of a certain age, they can't get over the fact that like caring about politics is kind of embarrassing in some sense. That like actually by by taking political politics seriously, in a way you lose. That's not that's not funny. Like what what's funny is being above it all and and them being beneath you. And I agree, there's definitely a chumminess there. But even with a little bit of acidity, like um, and I think Ian Hislop, to be fair, like. He does sometimes look like he doesn't like the politicians that they have on, you know, much more than like spitting image, say. But, but, right, like, but this is but this is the thing, right? It like the fact that thinking about the format, they they let politicians come on as like panelists and as like as the chair. Yeah, yeah. As though they're and this is They're on the same team, literally on the same team. <laughs> they are exactly they're on yeah. the same team. And it's like and we're talking, we'll talk about in a different context about this fusion of, of politics and journalism. But by, by setting it up in that way, yes, he and his lot can be a bit like, be a bit sharp, right? But he's not going to do what Cook did at that moment when Macmillan was in the theatre, which is essentially say, you're not supposed to be here. This is my space. Mm. You don't get to come here and be comfortable, right? actually they are they were actually comfortable they were it was part of a shared media where we're all you know we're all reasonable people but we, you know we've got slightly different games and your point about not taking politics seriously i think is really interesting because i think it's it fits in with the broader age demographic where people of my age basically grew up thinking you know what you don't think about politics you don't think about ideology you think about getting ahead and making a lot of money and actually thinking about ideology in a critical way was was be, would be directly damaging to your kind of career trajectory, right? Mm. You would go into a highly ideological institution like McKinsey or like one of the you know, investment banks and you would, you would adopt their ideology. You wouldn't sit back and go, hang on a minute, is that right? 
right is it, are we really are we really doing god's work by pumping up these credit markets and so on right you didn't think about things seriously you just went where you where your biography you know a biography of flourishing would take you and i think part of what happens after 2008 is that that the luxury of thinking yeah you know thinking about politics i used to think about politics at university I was a bit of a lefty, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I was in the socialist club. You know, we all go through that phase. And then I went into something serious and, and got my hands on as much cash as possible. I mean, that kind of social world is of a piece with the media world, it's of a piece with the comedic or, quote, satirical world of, of the late, late 90s, early 2000s. And it frankly, it doesn't, it just doesn't wash anymore because it's like, their equivalents who are 20 years younger are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I just think it's weird like that they're all still there, you know, like in a way, like thinking about it as you just did in terms of like age and, uh, you know, it's not quite a generational experience, but like, yeah, like, what are they still doing there? It just reminds me, you know, it just reminds me of like, um, and this is going to show my age, but like in the, uh, in the sort of, mid 90s in radio one they had all of these djs there you know had been there since like the 70s or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and they were still playing status quo or whatever or whatever and they were all kicked out on their ass so that they could play like equally bad music that was recently been made but like um that there was this there was a sort of purge you know like, like somebody at the bbc suddenly turned around and be like hold on everybody yeah. here is really old and i remember like a similar sort of thing happened later where like some of the people who sort of came through at that age then got to their sort of mid thirties, you know. There was a lot of banter about their kids or whatever, and it's just like you're supposed to be the inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but the BBC is just like that. You know, they just get these like these people, and they're just like, I mean, you know, they're just still there, and you just think, what are you doing? Like, you know, at some point, surely you have to like, there must be people out there who you could you could potentially <laughs> recruit. But like, I think it's part, you know, part of the problem is really that, I mean, in all seriousness, that they have um because because I, I think the common interpretation of this would be that this is what happens with bureaucracies but actually this is commercialized um production of a lot of this stuff i mean and yeah. it is it's commissions that these big companies have got from the bbc and it's actually what markets tend to do is they do produce dross you know or things that people are already you know expect and they just deliver on that and that's why so many series get worse and worse and worse and they get recommissioned in the United States. And it's the same reason why I think, you know, it's quite difficult to break through in comedy as it's become. There's an interesting, yeah, there's an interesting relationship with marketization as well in the sense that, like, if you create a small number of, quote, celebrities, then they, they're able to bid up their price. And then the producers who are negotiating or the executives who are negotiating with the agents to keep you know, there's one of these monstrous DJs on the roster is like talking big money and it's a big deal. And it's very, they're very responsible. Instead of saying, which is what was obvious, it's like, guys, we've got all these radio stations and all these te television stations. We can create as many celebrities as we want. We can mass produce celebrities, right? It's not difficult to get people who are likable on screen or likable on air, right? Podcasting has sort of shown that there are plenty of people out there who can just have a chat. I mean, present company excluded, right? People can have a chat and be, be engaging and like, like, like they can do the job that, that these DJs are doing. But it's like, no, no, we can only have a few. 
right? Yeah, a bit of banter isn't really a gift from God, is it? But like, um, oh, that, that was what that's what like those CJs told themselves, you know, like people like Chris Evans would be like, have a few of his mates on like in the morning, just making jokes about yeah. like what they did at the weekend. Be, like, oh, my God. Chris Evans, like, what an absolute master he is of the, of the genre, you know, like he's just got this sort of effortless ladism and also he brought in his mates and he would talk about them on the microphone yeah. <laughs> just like Un- yeah there's no there's no way that other people in britain could have done that <laughs> like, just because that would be amazing to like talk about what you club you went to the weekend i mean so younger listeners won't remember any of these cultural references we're supposed to be talking about i don't know why like it's slightly occupied my um my, my thoughts of late but um it's probably because I'm approaching 40. But uh, where were we? Um, before so we, we just literally, basically, we've got to the second line of my notes. <laughs> there are more. There this are more. professional we are. There are more like, notes. Having, having said that, anybody could do the job of a professional. <laughs> <laughs> well, Listen to the 18 hour Media Democracy podcast. <laughs> just rambled for three quarters of an hour. Uh, no, I don't think we're quite there yet. Okay, um, so no, there are there are a few things we wanted to cover. Um, basically, yeah. So uh, quickly, I wanted to just uh, I just wanted to give a, like a moment pause and to, to sort of notice the famous hipster analysis versus the columnists moment in the spring, uh, where um, you were seeing a lot of quite establishment figures or established figures in the media, you know, dismissing uh, things that people were saying on Twitter as being, you know, ill-educated and ill-advised and so on. And there were a couple of really sort of bone-crunching moments where it's like, actually, government was going for herd immunity and it stopped going for herd immunity now. I I mean, you know, I don't want to oversimplify things, but it seems like so much of that was vindicated. And not even, it didn't even take that long. But, you know, we've had it again with all of these debates around um, a second wave. You know, so like loads of people were saying were saying this, and it's just it's just been a really curious thing that like, yeah, people who have been derided and like, um, yeah, often as you say, like, just, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't go as far as saying abuse, but like condescended towards like very publicly, just clearly had a much better grasp of what was going on and what was likely to happen than the people who are the nation's kind of official commentators. I mean, hipster analysis, yeah, I can't remember who who used that term, but I mean, that, that obviously aged very poorly. But the thing is, like, the, the kind of um, lack of critical scrutiny that was going on in that particular period, you know, in the rundown to the to, to lock, run up to lockdown, exactly the same thing happening now. I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to, I don't want to name names, I mean, do I? I don't know, but, like, I just, like, occasionally see what Robert Pesson's up to and it just I just find it extraordinary like how can you I just don't understand how you can keep doing these kind of like anonymous briefing stuff during a pandemic and I don't understand why somebody at the ITV and and also you know the equivalent of it's been going on at the BBC why somebody in editorial at some point doesn't doesn't just turn around to these people and just say look like this is a serious situation like we need to represent a broad swathe of like scientific opinion we need to make international comparisons like these are all really rudimentary points which were being made early on in the in the pandemic and we've just seen the same thing again and again it's just um you know even in the last few weeks of repeatedly we've just had 
every kind of critical perspective being either marginalized or like Connor said at the time, then being vindicated. And then at the same time, like this period of, yeah, the journalists just briefing whatever they're getting from Downing Street. And um, it does you know, seem incredibly reckless. And at the weekend, someone was tweeting from us from a temporary Twitter account because their, their main account had been blocked or had been managed to lock themselves out of their own account. And they were tweeting it. So they were tweeting out of this kind of hastily improvised um, Twitter account. Um, leaks from the government about what was going to happen with like changing the tiers and like really serious stuff and it was just being like just being run in a way that was like wildly amateurish i mean this brings brings us on to um one of the features of the summer or the sort of late summer perhaps which was this kind of um uh the sort of the way that the the bailouts were described by the BBC, the way that people like Peston and Koonsberg were talking about the deficit and how we were going to have to get it under control again. And it was just like, it was this sort of zombie, zombie realism about like money and um, monetary policy, where it seems like the economics um, uh, correspondence in the, in the mainstream seemed to be a bit more wary about making analogies with the nation's credit cards and stuff like they've sort of slightly got that maybe that's not right but the political correspondents are just blithely going on about like talking about for example as though it's his money right he's like he's being generous with like they have no conception of what's going on with a monetary policy and, and seem to have no curiosity about it whatsoever and the dangerous thing about this is that we are being teed up for when we come out of this, another round of just like brutal cuts to public services and brutal attacks on living conditions that will be justified in terms of the fact that we've got to pay down the debt in a way that is just absolutely self-defeating, absolutely completely illiterate. And going back to what you were saying earlier, it's like it's stuff they can just say because there's no consequences. No one can actually seems no one seems to have any purchase on them to say, stop saying these these ridiculous things. It's extraordinary, you know, it's just like <clears throat> it's just go, you know, we're going we're going back 10 years. It's like it's like they're gonna just gonna do it all again. And yeah. you you just think like you know, the level of kind of institutional naivety and i i think like um yeah the, the, i mean really that it's a, on, on the behalf of like editors and editorial policy at the bbc and the other major broadcasters i mean it's a dereliction of duty really because you've got you do have a serious obligation to be able to educate the audience as to how yeah. the economy yeah. works and yeah. you know the, 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 there isn't an economist i mean there are obviously debates within um, economics as the um, mainstream economics as to how you um, handle recessions and the rest of it. But there's nobody who thinks this analogy of, of the credit card is good. Like there's there's some conservative MPs who like who like that analogy, yeah. and that, that's it. So yeah. you know, it just comes back to the central problem of um, political journalism, which is that basically, if a politician says something, then that that becomes the story you know they are they are allowed to and it, yeah it comes back to what we were saying earlier about you know statements made, made by politicians on tv they are allowed to set the agenda and it doesn't yeah. matter if that's in some sort of you know, pure fantasy world you know and that that's that's where we were in the most extreme form with the last general election and and it, you know i mean not wanting to dig this up but like going back to the referendum because as we speak we're on this 
you know, the brink of a Brexit deal or a not Brexit deal. And for some reason, like Laura Koonsberg and the rest of them are incredibly excited about it going one way or the other because they're excited at the very process of politics as a drama. But like, you know, back to the referendum itself, there was a sort of sense of, oh, you know, people, politicians saying things, that, 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 that becomes a story in some way. And it's not really my job to say whether, whether this is true or not. This is the nature of the story. And it's the nature of the story because, you know, particular politicians, and it is particular politicians, um, yeah. say that this is the story. This is, a, yeah. it's a profoundly dysfunctional form of journalism. And I mean, maybe we can talk about it a little, a little bit later as well when we talk about that, that uh, BBC Twitter paper I did. But it's a profoundly dysfunctional form of journalism. The BBC doesn't even itself champion. Like they don't, I mean, Nick Robinson sometimes says, you know, this is the kind of journalism that I do. But on paper, due impartiality is not supposed to just simply parrot what powerful people say. They're supposed to hold power to account and they're supposed to represent a diversity of views in society. And they're supposed to represent extra expert opinion. You know, how can you be an, a broadcaster or any media institution that wants to educate people if fundamentally, you allow dishonest political actors to set the framework of the debate. You know, I don't, I honestly don't think that most journalists in, 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 in an unguarded moment would reject any of what we've just said, any of those arguments. They know this is the situation, but like culturally and structurally, they're just not, in, they're just not capable of change. And like, you know, there have been good policy papers written by the BBC where they say, oh, this is a big problem. You know, all of our agenda comes from Westminster you know, we need to be able to hold politicians to account. And they write these reports and where do they go? That they just get written, they get put online and then people just crack on. You know, they just can't go on like this. And and, like, and I think, you know, not, without wanting to sound too melodramatic, I think you're, what, what's worrying about this is we are, by all accounts, going to be going into a very major period of economic crisis, which if anything might be worse than the previous time we had all these clowns, you know, running around talking about credit cards there's going to be very serious consequences there's been very serious consequences in this pandemic and the pandemic doesn't now seem to be going anywhere um and yeah we're we're sort of starting into a major economic crisis so there's going to be serious consequences in terms of like how these people are conducting themselves so i do think it's very i do think it's very serious um it's profoundly serious it's profoundly serious and as you say it's already had important consequences in the in the crisis you know what what the government have been able to do is, I think, use public spending to maintain and preserve capitalist um, economic relations. So the money has gone into preserving the employer-employee relationship, even in sectors that have been completely kind of denied, you know, their rationale for protracted periods of time. And the, under the cover of people just talking gobbledygook about you know super rishi um coming to the rescue and all this sort of drivel absolute drivel um that passes for coverage um there has not been any kind of discussion about the fact that we we don't really need to be necessarily keeping these sectors on life support when we could be sort of engage being engaged in a massive program of public works to for example mitigate the the likely impacts of climate change um, instead of which, you've, you've got a government that is simply preserving um, the the employer-employee nexus on its on its unreformed terms. It's it's pre- preserving precarity in a yeah. lot of cases. I think it's, you know I, I do think it's worth saying that it would be very difficult for the government to 
politically respond to the crisis in the way that it has with a functional media. And I, I think, right. you know, we, we need to be straightforward about that and just say, look, if, if there, there are a number of reasons why the government has been able to build, build up a sort of particularly potent sort of public political support, but ultimately in terms of like the kind of strategies they want to pursue, the main thing is that they just do have this, this, this support. And I'm afraid it isn't just the, the tabloids, it isn't just the right-wing press, it's also the way the BBC yeah. treats the government as just basically having a legitimacy that, that the left lacks. So I'm not going to sort of bang on about that, but like, you know, you mentioned Superman earlier, so for anyone who like missed this, the, the Chancellor was literally in, in a BBC um, article, like portrayed as Superman. Like, I, I assume there's a sort of fun tongue in cheek type yeah. thing, oh, yeah. or his I'm... powers, you know, but it was just like, and actually, to my surprise, they took it down, you know. So it but it, it's, not, it's of a piece with a kind of infantilizing drivel about things that the BBC have decided are boring and technical and shouldn't be discussed, right? And it would be, it's worth sort of pausing for a minute and just thinking about, well, what would it be like if the BBC actually tried to explain economics to people? Like, there are plenty of academics who, who are very engaging and they could explain things and they could get, like, animators to help them with... Like, you could tell a really interesting story about the UK economy, right? That, it, that would be engaging and that would, could be presented as, like, you need to know this stuff, otherwise your kids won't be able to afford a house, right? Or you're going to be poor in old age, right? If you don't understand this stuff, you're in trouble, right? It is not technical. It's not kind of abstract. And you could do it, if you put your mind, if you, they put their mind to it, the BBC could do it in a really compelling way. They don't do it. They won't do it. And it's a really, like you say, there are structural and cultural reasons why they won't. And we just, all we can do at the moment is just say, you know, you are complicit in this. You know, yeah, you are complicit. I agree. And just to take it back to what we were saying about earlier, you know, they could actually describe politics in a much, I mean, I'm not going to say it can make politics interesting to everybody, but part of the reason why they make politics, politics is so difficult to sell to people, it's the way that they treat politics in this sort of Laura Koonsberg um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe of being, oh, this is interesting because this is people doing things in Westminster and you need to be interested in this, right? And it's actually worrying that people aren't interested in this. Well, no, it's not worrying that people aren't interested in, like, this MP's, you know, um, in a job or out of job or anything like that. That's not interesting. You know, that's, that's just sport for dull people. Like, yeah. if, if you see that there being some interest at stake here, then then that that becomes a completely different ball game, as it were. Um, but that's not how they do it because the way that the BBC treats the economy and the way the BBC treats politics is basically this is something to do this is like something that's being managed and the people who are managing are important because they're making important decisions so 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 the personalities are interesting the people involved in business are interesting and and like you say they want to tell these kinds of stories to attract people and engage people with something that they think that is important but ultimately is is it fundamentally gets kind of depoliticized and you see it with like their constant effort in the way because you know i i'm actually in favor of impartiality but the way they construe it as being the sort of balancing act which ultimately has to depend what the one thing they can't do is question the good faith and legitimacy of particular or political actors right they had they cannot say that this politician represents this kind of interest they will never yeah. do that um, yeah. Because ultimately, that isn't for them what politics is about. It's about an elite sort of 
parlor game which is based on representing different values like they're interested in it as a game but just not in that kind of game and with economics it's the same fundamentally and this is one of the things which i you know spent a lot of time researching for 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 my book in terms of how that they understand the economy what really shifted for the bbc in the 1990s was the idea of the economy as a sort of sphere of conflicting interest because that was very embedded in the idea of how you report on the economy in the social democratic period and it really lasted in the I mean, into the early 90s to some extent, you know, there were people hanging around a bit like, you know, the comedians we were talking about earlier who still still thought the important thing about the economy was like employing people and creating yeah. wealth for people rather than like business lining their pockets, you know, and they had to be got rid of. They, it, that was the shift that took place, was, a, was away from the idea of the economy as a conflict of interest towards something to be managed. And of course, fundamentally, managing things just isn't interesting. But if you're if you're if you're like a if you're a geek, then you just create all of these like like you say like either either like weird or like just condescending ways of trying to make this kind of you know fundamentally uninteresting kind of structure something be interesting. What do you end up with? Like zany stuff like um Andrew Neil's like show, you know, where they're like Yeah, um, where they dance around and and yeah, again, completely insult our intelligence. And yeah. And parade their, it just parade their celebrity. It's like, look at me, I'm famous for talking to politicians who are famous and we're famous and we're famous and we're famous and we're famous because we're famous. And as you say, the presumption is that the structure itself, like the nature of what's happening is boring and it has to be then personalized. I remember talking to someone who's involved in tax justice campaigning and they would have endless conversation with documentary makers. And they'd say, yeah, this is, um, this is dynamite, this stuff, but is there a personal angle? Like, is there a way that we can bring it sort of to the root to the, the viewer? Because basically our viewers are stupid and they don't, they don't understand structures. So if you talk about offshore finance, you're just going to lose them. You just, we can't do that. So is there a footballer we could bring in to sort of be the, like the problem, like the face of the problem? And interestingly, they, um, it's a tax justice network eventually created a, um, a documentary, which is free on YouTube. And it's had millions and millions of viewers, right? And it's a very, very structural account of offshore and how it mm. relates to states and how it relates to the financial sector onshore and so on. There's no fucking about with like, oh, this is a fun story about a person you've heard of. It's just like, this is how the system works. This is why it matters to people. And millions of people watched it because it's good, right? And they spent decades talking to Panorama, everyone. And they're like, yeah, no one will watch that, mate. No, what's that? It's amazing that they're so confident that they know what people will like. I love it when, when we, they, you know, they, they have, they still have a slot. And I know, like, you know, the amount of people who will, will just watch Paranormal because Paranormal because it's on TV is like, you know, it's nothing compared to what it, what it used to be. But for Christ's sake, like, if you can get if you can get the views on YouTube for that, you can, I'm sure you can get them in, in Panorama. I mean, who's yeah, going to be like sitting there, like, uh, and like. Oh, well, there's panorama tonight. Is it has it got like Harry Redknapp in it or somebody else who I know? Like, no, I'm not watching that then. You know, it's just like it's just not gonna happen. But I, I mean I think I think that is all built into journalism, you know. The idea to be fair to them, there there is I suppose there is a difficulty in terms of like storytelling to some degree. You know, they want to put something on the screen and then that that becomes okay, we want to put something on the screen that, that people get. We need to hook people, you know, and it's, it's all part of this kind of cultural apparatus, apparatus yeah. that gets yeah. built around program making, isn't it? And, but, like, but like you say, like it, ultimately where this ends up is just like either, yeah, infantilizing issues, but like it, in a way, like 
you know, I wouldn't mind the patronizing like explainers if they actually help to explain what's going on. Right. <laughs> like the, combi the combination yeah, they're being talked down they, to with something yeah. that just doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. just like, oh, okay, you know, great explainer. Now I feel like a five-year-old who doesn't understand something. You know, it's just like that's not the point of what an explainer is. That's made it worse. Yeah, that's made it actually worse. I think there's a problem as well of, of like formal conservatism about like what a documentary is supposed to like, what factual programming is supposed to look like. And you know, I think again with with new media on YouTube and stuff, you realise that actually, like if you do it well, someone just talking for ten minutes can be really engaging. It can be really useful. And the idea that you've got to, as you say, put it all on the screen and make a, make a, a sort of dram dramatic production of it. It's like, yeah, if you can do that, that's great. It's a very effective way of doing it. But you can't shy away from topics because there isn't a sort of off-the-shelf topic, you know, way of doing it, right? The, the, the difficulty with, with understanding a changing reality is that the, they, like, the phenomena haven't been narrativized yet. That's the point, right? It's like offshore is an emergent phenomenon. It's not like, oh yeah, we know about that. We know how to make that visual. Of it anyway, because you can always just use like archival footage and some music. Of course you can. Like, there's a there's a visual language for it. But you know, it, you know, it's again, it's worth thinking about as with like broader sort of like coverage of the economy. Like, what would be wrong with having a like a seminar of very very like experienced and like articulate economists? Having, having them talk for four hours and then editing it down, right? So that you can get, you can actually get like an understanding of where the differences in their opinions are, how they, how they relate to each other. Yeah, I agree. It's not, it's not beyond their powers. It's, it, it is a cultural thing that I think with, with journalism, you know, it, it gets expressed, I think, as, as a technical sort of problem. How do we how do we make how do we translate this into good program making and, and you know that goes way back doesn't it I mean because the funny thing is that like on, on something that would be just more conventional I'd be perfectly happy to have someone just sort of sitting there and talking you know the Blair yeah, yeah, years, you know we'd be like we'd be like, like, like oh, this would be great we can just get Alistair Campbell to talk for like yeah. three hours and it will be absolute dynamite yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like of but most of the political coverage is just people is just talking heads, right? But it's 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 correspondence just talking drivel about who's up and who's down in Westminster. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's yeah. fine. That's fine because it fits the needs of the genre. But like as you say, the moment you get you get come across something actually it's objectively interesting, suddenly, oh no, we've got to find a way of making this interesting. It's like, well, why? It's already interesting because no one knows about it. Fucking idiots. We've had a go at the BBC, as is our want. Um, yeah. We should talk a bit Friend about of the show, uh, the BBC. <laughs> right, exactly. We should have a little bit of a, we should pause and have a little bit of a chat, I think, about um, the print press and the Times in particular, or the murder operations um, more generally. Um, last, I think at the end of last week, um, the Home Office finally published its report on group-based child sexual exploitation mm. it was a, a sort of sort of review of a number of reports and inquiries that had gone on into um the uh, the phenomenon of what they call group group-based um exploitation 
children in places like Rotherham. Now, you and I talked about this, I think, back in 2018, when Sarah Champion wrote an article for The Sun about the problem, as she, she called it, of um, uh, Pakistani gangs um, uh, predating on, I think she said, white white girls. Or, uh, yes, she did, yeah. And um, it was also, it was, it was done in the sort of tone of like, you know, I'm going to say something brave here, you know, that no I'm one's brave. allowed to say. Bravely um, as we're you know very very used to now in terms of how the right wing press operates which is uh you know i'm going to do some taboo breaking here in order to get to the core social problem which is pakistani men um yeah uh, and we this... talked about it we talked about it then and and i think we sort of we highlighted the the ways in which the the mainstream coverage of this uh, this these scandals really fell into the 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 sort of the rhetorical structure of and i'm going to be quite specific i'm not using the word loosely but nazi anti-semitic propaganda in the 20s and 30s where the the phenomenon of the that the the ethnically alien predator who is attacking um the native or the indigenous womanhood um is like you literally find this this rhetorical trope in mein Kampf, right yeah. i mean it is yeah well, and you know I, I think we can stand by that you know it is, it is literally like a, a a nazi idea you know and it's a it's a motivating fascist passion isn't it the idea of protecting um vulnerable indigenous people against foreign sexual deviants who yeah. themselves are being um, supported by sort of effete liberal elements within um, government and the law, law enforcement who'd rather not stand against like the Jewish menace or in this case, yeah, um, Muslim menace. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's this, it's this alliance between alien um, barbarians, if you like, and their kind of weak-willed um, collaborators in the establishment is, is precisely as it were, the topography of, of fascism. The thing about this is that, you know, elements of this have, have become like, you know, slowly more mainstream, like different aspects of like, you know, fascistic um, ideology and conspiracy theory uh, have through this government got more of an airing. You know, we, we've been drawn into a, what is called, um, usually called culture wars, which obviously like, you know, covers a whole range of different social issues but we've seen for example um you know since we last podcasted like ideas like you know the great replacement um there was a big hoo-ha the other week i don't even remember where like um a fascist according to a program that keir starmer was um presenting and 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 aired that um and it wasn't you know it wasn't challenged by the presenter or directly challenged by keir starmer which which caused one of these like you know brief um public controversies um but you know this whole idea of cultural marxism this sort yeah. of notion again that like there's this a political and there's a metropolitan political intellectual class which themselves are allowing the sort of potency of the body politic to be diluted by these outsiders who represent this 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 cultural threat to the strength of the nation and all of the rest of it you know these are really just really familiar ideas from fascist ideology but i think it, you know maybe we can talk 
briefly about the, the the culture wars. I don't know how much you had to say about that, but it's worth us saying that it's not just the fact that these are in in a sort of ideological sense, like completely noxious and 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 and, and dangerous sets of ideas. It's just that if you actually look at the evidence of what's going on in society, it's just not not what's happening. And that that was what was like significant yeah. about the Home Office report that. Um, that's, that's what we should really sort of nail down on that, isn't it? Is that the report itself makes it absolutely clear that this is a problem that is not confined to any one group or you know in society. Yeah. Most of the most of the coordinated abuse is, is conducted by the majority white population, as you would expect, because they're the majority of the population. And it's the singling out and the racializing of this phenomenon um, is is on it's just not it's not warranted by the evidence now the other the other thing which is which is not really dealt with in the report which comes out in the report on on rotherham in particular by baroness j which i read a couple of couple of years ago when it when we first sort of talked about this the key key point in there is that they don't know why the police didn't act right they didn't there's no question that the police was being hampered by um political correctness and if you if you've had any dealings with south yorkshire police I'd imagine the idea that they're hampered by political regrets was slightly is kind of strange, right? These are these are not people who are the, you know like the the caricature of the left wing sort of academic, right? They don't know why they behaved in the way that they did, right? But the report, the most recent report, does point out that a lot of the people who the, the police weren't arresting and prosecuting were also gangsters, right? So you've got policemen not chasing gangsters now i just just leave that there and again part of the part of the the, the completely disgraceful aspect of, of a lot of this mainstream coverage is it it failed to ask the really salient questions like why were the police behaving in the way they were behaving these are really this is like it's that's a big deal and it would not be possible for for those people to have carried on in the way they were carrying on for as long as they did had the police been doing their job and it wasn't political correctness that was hampering them so what the fuck was going on it's interesting like um, you know that none of that comes up in the report as you say but like a couple of things which which do like one of which was the fact that is you know well known by anyone who's ever studies the sociology of crime which is that the crime statistics are not reliable as to what's actually going on partly because the police only because it, it's a reflection of police activity. So there'll be some people who the police will actually stop, will actually yeah. arrest, will actually process into the criminal justice system and, and others who they won't. So if you want to get a good sense of what's actually going on, police data is very bad for that. Now, I guess we wouldn't expect an official report to think in a more critical of who are the police interacting with, who is getting brought into the process and who's getting ignored. But obviously it begs that question. The other element, which I think is also something that you mentioned when we discussed this before, which is mentioned in this report, is the role of um, patriarchy and misogyny um, and just general abuses of, of power in all of these um, sex scandals. You know, there's there was very, very little critical discussion of yeah, yeah, abuses of power um, and, and patriarchy and misogyny and any critical interrogation of the police because as ever with police stories the story and this has really been the story i think for the right-wing press since mcpherson has been 
are people in Whitehall, you know, tying the hands of police and forcing them to not do what is right to um, right. protect vulnerable people against the predations of, you know, various um, ill-doers? And, you know, again, it's just it's just a fundamental, I, I think with police, actually, it's a really interesting, like, if you read like, the work of someone like Robert Rayner, who's written on the police for decades now, one of the things that comes across from his work is how striking the difference between what the police actually do in real life and how they're portrayed in fiction and in the media. I mean, there's a, I think it's a bit like what we we're talking about earlier with the economy. You know, there's just this enormous gulf between, like, between um, how these groups of people are portrayed and what they're actually doing in society. And we do know some things about that because, you know, there is some research on, 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 on what mm. the police do. And there is good investigative work and investigative journalism at the margins as well, looking into issues of police corruption and, have, and has been for decades. And particularly when you look back like 30 or 40 years, you, you can go back and figure out, okay, what were the police actually up to? And, and, and then it's sort of at some point it becomes okay to say that the police were corrupt, like, you know, 30 years ago. I guess it's like the 30 year rule, isn't it? It's like the British state was very, very bad during the Cold War, but luckily, thank goodness, we've yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess what I'm saying is, like, we, we, we do know, like, or people do, we have enough information about these institutions, then the question becomes, well, how do people become then aware of that information? Well, you know, if you don't have a sense of, like, the role of cultural production and, and the news media, I just don't see how you make, a sense, make sense of that gap. You know, how, how, how do you do that? Um, I, d I don't think it's possible to. And you can see it on so many key issues. And it always touches on it on issues of um, social power. You know, as soon as you reach there, that's the point at which um, you start yeah. to see this kind of divergence. And, you know, that's 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 why we've spent so much time talking about the media and talking about you know the, it's it's dereliction of its duty. And you know, on the BBC in particular, the reason why we mentioned the BBC, you know, they the Daily Mail is never going to be ever educating people about the the function of of different social institutions. I mean, it's just not what it's fundamentally, it's just not what it's for, you know. <laughs> Nobody thinks it's supposed to do that. Nobody said it's going to do that. Um, that is what the, the BBC is supposed to do. Um, and, and and that's why, you know, we that's why we spent so much time talking about the BBC and talking about the possibility of different sorts of institutional forms, not only in public media, but, you know, um, alternative media. And that's why we've paid so much attention to the question of media reform, um, which I guess sort of brings us up to speed to some degree to, I guess, what we've been doing in this area um, since. Oh, very neat segue. Very smooth. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> so I, um, there were, I guess there was a, I mean, I've sort of in this comp constant situation of sort of feeling like I should have done more than I have done. I feel very, very busy and feel like I'm never really sort of doing or achieving anything. But, um, you know, if you do follow me on Twitter, I guess you sort of know roughly what I've been up to, just making sarcastic remarks about politics um, and working, really. But I had a paper out, which I don't think we need to talk, talk about in any depth, really, about um, the BBC's... Uh, who the BBC journalists follow on Twitter, basically, and just um, looking to see what kind of pattern version that. I'm going to stop you there. I'm going to be a professional podcaster because I've written two questions. 
two questions about your paper. Yeah. Firstly, what would you tell someone if you met them at a party about your paper? Right, just what's the one thing you want to share? Wouldn't the first question be, would I raise the content of a paper? I mean? Okay, okay, we'll role play this, Tom. <laughs> like imagine, imagine we're in a world where you can meet people in, in yeah. the world, have a drink and have a chat. So, yeah, um, yeah I saw, Tom, I saw you published a, a paper. What What's the one thing you tell someone at the party? Um, what would the one thing be? I mean, I, <laughs> I'm so good at explaining my research. Um, You've got to work on this because it's impact. This is in, this is gold. This is golden impact right here. Yeah, I, I suppose. Okay, Maybe, well, right, I'll, give some, I'll give you some time to think because the thing that struck me about it yeah. was the the extraordinary disparity in UK um, journalism between the treatment of the the main, as it were, English, increasingly English parties, the Conservatives and Labour Party, yeah. and the underrepresentation of Scottish and um, Northern Irish and uh, Welsh specific parties, and that really was re that was really striking to me as as evidence of a, a as it were a national culture that is increasingly coming apart at the seams. Because I think a lot of people who report on Westminster don't really think that they're reporting on UK politics. They think they're talking about Westminster politics, right? Yeah. And, and that means they want to talk to Boris Johnson and they want to talk to Keir Starmer. They want to cultivate figures in that area. There's no, in, there's no interest in going back to things, you know, the, the BBC's mission not to explain. There seems to be no interest in explaining to people what the SNP is, no. right? I mean, or, I, I think it's interesting, actually, like, so going back to like, the point of the paper, I mean, just to give, sort of fill people in for, for very quickly, what we did with that was it just scraped everyone who be this 90 BBC journalists followed on Twitter and then and then looked at just the MPs they followed and just looked at some distribution. Actually, like I, I think in part, like you, you had mentioned to me a while back, and it, I think it wasn't a point that like sunk in for me until you you said to me that it's not just about the these interests in Westminster, like that's very unevenly distributed within Westminster as to which MPs they think are important. You know, they've got far all interest in backbench MPs. And that was partly why I thought, oh, well, actually this would be quite interesting. Let's, let's see the extent to which they are orientated towards lead players in Westminster. You know, because in, de in democratic terms, you know, there should be pretty broad interest in so far as like, at least proportional to like how much support different MPs have, or like you might think you would be interested in the SNP because of the significant change that they've had in one part of the UK, you know, like, it's like it, 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 and it, what we found actually was that it was the Change UK lot who had the most focus from BBC journalists, followed by the Liberal Democrats, you know, the sort of ultimate centrist, English centrist, were, were yeah. much more followed than the SNP. And, and actually, even by the the dominant political parties, I mean, partly because there's a lot more backbenchers in, um, in those those parties, I suppose, which sort of. Um, but the yeah, so it, that was very striking. Um, I suppose the other thing, the the other major finding was partly out of my own political curiosity, was like looking at Labour Party factions and Conservative Party factions. So we found that surprise surprise that the the MPs most hostile towards Corbyn had much more attention than any other group even the the, the core support group many of which were in the shadow cabinet in in this was in early last year early 2019 um so the BBC is like 
the picture is sort of complicated, but like broadly speaking, what you find is that the BBC is orientated, you know, fundamentally towards the in, an English centre of gravity in Westminster. The dominant players within Westminster, the the ruling party over the opposition, and within those ruling those two dominant parties towards the more centrist wings, and particularly, to, you know, in the case of the Labour Party, towards the hardline kind of right wing of the party. Um, I think to some of our listeners, this won't be that surprising. But what I wanted to do was to, you know, find some empirical way of really measuring the culture of, of BBC political journalism, really. I mean, that's that's the point of the paper. You know, can you, through what is, you know, very basic measure of, like, I suppose, orientation or attention, see to what extent what we already know from the BBC's reporting is also present on social media and, you know, in, in this case, Twitter. And, you know, the findings, um, I was surprised, actually, that Conservative MPs were more followed than Labour MPs, for example. I mean, I, I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised. Um, yeah. I was surprised how, how, in some ways, how predictable Corbyn faction results were. Um, but really, like, the the focus on England over the um, other nations of the UK was it doesn't seem to me to be like politically um, or um, BBC journalism to be operating yeah. like that and I think it does it does you know with some very basic numbers illustrate I think a lot of the cultural political problems which we discussed in in this particular podcast but just you know um, again this show and in, in this podcast I think yeah yeah I mean, it, and it leads again, and this is another area where there's just an air of unreality about coverage in the sense that Labour was the was the hegemonic party in Scotland for most of the post-war period. Um, certainly from 79 onwards, um, it was the, you know, Labour was, you know, an incredibly powerful force in Scottish political life. Um, as it, you know, as it was until recently on in some sense still is in the north of England it was obliterated it has been obliterated by the SNP and this is a phenomenon that's completely changed the balance of forces if you like in in the UK parliament it's completely changed the way that um uh, we we can we can try and make sense of national politics in the UK and yet the BBC seems to be profoundly incurious about it yeah, and I, I think it. I think it underlines a lot of the misunderstandings about the situations and prospects of the Labour Party. You know, because if you think of like what the, that little buffer of Scotland, you know, was what fundamentally made the difference between the late Blairism, you know, and and the situation that we have now, where yeah, you know, there's yeah. this, this huge. Name. And again, and again, there is. There's been, to my mind, to my understanding, or to my knowledge, there's been no attempt to point out that what happens in Scotland is going to happen in the north of England in South Wales, mm-hmm. unless something profound changes. And and all this sort of chatting about what Starmer's going to do, it's, none of it seems to be connected to the fact that he doesn't, he's not talking about anything that will address the reasons why the, the, Scot- the Scottish Labour Party has collapsed and why the Labour Party in, in other parts of its former heartlands is in danger of collapse. And it's like, what is political coverage for if not trying to understand the political geography of this country? Yeah, I agree. You know, and then actually, to- like to go back to the BBC specifically, you know, again, it's in their constitution, it's in their remit, it's under their charter that they're supposed to represent the diversity of different communities and nations of the UK. Like, 
as two English Southern men, we should be able to watch the BBC and understand the different parts of England and perspectives from Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland in a way we just don't. Like, because yeah. you can't rely on the BBC to inform you of that. You can rely on the yeah. BBC to tell people in Scotland what's going on in Westminster, but you can be damn sure of that. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's, a, it's a one-way street. And ultimately what this reflects, I think, is that the culture and structures of the BBC are basically mapped onto the structures of the British state and its formal political system. And I, they don't dispute that, you know, nobody would dispute that, I don't think, at the BBC, but they think that reflects their fundamental democratic purpose, because ultimately what they find difficult to do is to question the, 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 the rules and the structures of formal politics. That, uh, even, even when they know that people are disaffected and angry with formal politics, they see their job as, as, as bridging that gap. And they're quite explicit about that. Um, it would be inappropriate for them to be questioning this. And even as, you know, the political, um, even as the political settlement in the last you know, decade has just been quite plainly to any observer imploding in the most spectacular fashion, it's just not reflected. And I don't know, I don't know at this stage like what it would take for, um, for the cult culture to change. And I think, you know, to some extent, I feel we should feel vindicated by the fact that nothing has changed because because fundamentally if the structures stay in place nothing will change and um you know that people it annoys people when you say that but i mean that that has been the case you know if if, if what we've been through in terms of this pandemic in terms of like the crisis around like um yeah what happened to labor in scotland and then with brexit and the aftermath of the financial crisis none of that um has really led to any fundamental reassessment to the rules of politics or the rules of how politics is reported and the way that the you know the political economy is described by the media establishment then like then nothing will no you know so i think people just you know, I'm sure everyone, most of our listeners agree, but like that should be the starting point for the conversation. You know, that's why I think, you know, it, it's easy to get very tired of critique because ultimately, you know, you need to persuade people of that. But ultimately, that also has to be the start of a conversation about like what what is to be done, really? You know, what should we do at this particular moment? Oh, you've done another lovely segue, Tom. I can't believe it. I'm in the, I'm in, I'm in the hands of a professional, um, which is one of the things. Yeah, which is one, one of the things that I've been working on this year um, was with a couple of comrades, Karis Hughes and, and Sam Coates. We we set up this little operation called Citizens for a Democratic Society, which is embryonic, may remain embryonic, may just be a network of the three of us. Um, but we wrote a, a launch article um, which came out a few weeks ago um basically like asking the question like what do we do now um that the labor party is no longer the vehicle for radical reform that it might have been or it seemed it might be under corbyn um and rather than let that radical reforming energy dissipate it's a practical attempt to say well where where could it go where could we go mm. without the um without the support of, as it were, a national, you know, a national bureaucracy, a national state with a reforming mission, which was starting to come into some sort of um, focus in the years between 2017 and 2019. You had think tanks and you had um, 
um, policy expert working on, on a, a sort of program of social democratic renewal. Um, and you and I were kind of, you know, adjacent to that, and we were kind of doing our best to kind of put get get media reform into that conversation. It's not really um, a viable way to to talk exactly in the kind of propositional way you you were you were sort of describing earlier, again beyond critique. And one of the things we we wanted to argue for is to say, look, there are actually institutional spaces which are formally democratic. Um, that we could, as, organi as, as organized collectivities, we could seek to um, gain some traction in, in these spaces and change their structure so that, so that uh, institutional spaces which currently rely on election, on mass memberships, which are basically demobilized, um, could be transformed so that information flows much more freely, much more um, bilaterally between uh, the leadership and the membership. Um, power relations are substantially equalized. Um, voice in how material resources are distributed is, is um, made much more equal and so on. There are structural innovations that could be made um, in various institutional spaces. Um, Leo Watkins, who we've worked with um, in the past and hopefully will, I'm sure, work with again, has talked about creating a media fund for momentum. And that's one example of a way in which a, a fairly conventional um, institutional form might be changed by changing information flows, changing the way that information moves around. And, and that is not, and I think we've tried to sort of hammer home tonight, information is not a nice to have extra. Information is absolutely core to what politics is. Politics only becomes a thing through mediation for most of us, right? It's not that, it's not that politics happens and then the BBC reports it. Right? Media coverage is co-constitutive of politics. It, it, it brings politics into being. It makes, it makes people understand politics in certain sorts of ways it makes things that that there are limits of certain kinds through the way that the events and personalities and structures are covered so if we're going to understand politics we're going to get better at doing politics i think we need to find practical ways of inserting ourselves into these institutional spaces creating institutions where that's where that's a, a viable possibility, exerting pressure on, on local government, for example, finding ways, particularly I think in England, um, I think the conversation is different in Scotland. Um, and, and again, there's another set of circumstances in, in Wales, but in, in provincial England, I just see like, just a, again, a, like a pervasive air of unreality. No one really knows what the hell's going on in their council. Um, there are all sorts of, of clubs and cooperatives and trade union institutions, all kinds of things out there that are supposed to be doing really important political work and often are quite kind of hamstrung or quite kind of moribund. And um, so we put out an article, you know, reaching out to people saying, let's have a conversation. And, and over the last few weeks, we've been, we've been talking to a lot of people about democratization, what it looks like in place, as it were, what it looks like in local government, um, and what it looks like in institutional contexts. And if any of our listeners are interested, then uh, you can find the article on open democracy. Um, I think it's called What Next After Corbynism, something like that. Called After Corbynism, Where Next Over at Open Democracy with. Yeah, and it was. Authors. I'm sure people would have found it, but I just thought for, for information. Could you say a little bit more about, like, um, just what role you see citizens for a democratic society? 
playing? I mean, I appreciate it, it's early days, but how, how for people who are interested in getting involved and getting in touch about this initiative, um, what, what do you envisage that doing and how do you see it as connecting to like different kind of um, initiatives people might be undertaking with these organisations and like local government and so on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the first things, one of the things we're doing right right now is is getting a sense of the terrain, getting a sense of the different groups that are already active in this space, or rather in these in these spaces. Um, we we're starting to, you know, we the, what we're not interested in doing, obviously, is reinventing the wheel. We're not interested in writing reports. We're not interested in sort of abstractly sort of spinning our wheels about how good participation would be in theory one of the things i think we can do is help um different elements of democratization movements be more aware of each other so that we can as it were shift attention from uh efforts in local democracy into efforts at institutional reform and vice versa so there are people working in one space who perhaps would benefit from talking to people working in another so that's, that's one thing we can do and are starting to do already which is interesting and and hopefully will be useful for people the other thing i think that we it's very important that we do is we identify some tangible projects early on um, that people have come up with on, on their own initiative uh, that they want to do and are agitating to do that have a democratizing edge to them and try and direct people's attention to them and encourage um, again people in different diff, working in different areas to coalesce around particular projects you know you know in a, in a kind of you know you turn up you vote you go like you you know try and minimize the amount of hassle I and mean, one of the key points to make here is that like a lot of the time we think about democracy as if people have endless amounts of time and that it's their fault that they don't really understand how the Labour Party works, for example. Labour Party is completely mystifying to most members. They don't really understand its, its, its structures. Its structures are kind of fictional as well because, they, you know, there's a huge amount of, of like backroom de deals that go on that make a mockery of the formal structures often. So the idea that millions of hundreds of thousands of members are going to sit down and read through the rule book for hours on end and piece together an abstract story about it, it's just not, it's just not practical. So one of the things we need to find are ways of getting people who don't have a huge amount of time to get sufficient information and sufficient insight to be able to exercise their power much more effectively. Um, and so, yeah, what I mean, you know, as part of that, we want to find ways that people can intervene in particular campaigns in a quick way, in a way that doesn't necessarily involve a huge amount of of time investment but which opens up the possibility of like oh if you'd like to know more about this like what the potential of this particular space is then you then we can we can form that that kind of coalition that community of interest and we can talk about it and i mean you know whether you look at the cooperative movement the, the mutuals big mutuals big big charitable found you know um institutions like the rspb you find lots and lots of spaces where people are elected um, there is a democratic content there, um, but the but the mass membership is basically inert at the moment. It doesn't op it doesn't function in the way that it's supposed to in liberal theory. 
right? And it's, again, because you've got millions of people with loads of stuff to do, it doesn't make sense for them to invest huge amounts of time trying to figure out which one of an, any number of candidates who are all trying to sound the same is the one who will actually protect their interests. Which is why, like, professionalised people would always end up running the show, isn't it? Or, like, either people with loads of time on their hands or people with, like, a monetary interest in, like... That's right. Yeah. And you know, it's so, just so obvious in the case of the Labour Party, but I guess it must be happening across civil society as well. That's right. It skews older, it skews more skews more affluent, and it skews to the professionalised core. Um, people without and, any political principles whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, yeah. let's and, say yeah, political principles beyond their own enrichment. Yeah, I mean, exactly. They, they belong to a political tradition, which is like, get what you can and get the fuck out, which is sort of very right. right so, We're impartial on this progress. We're not saying that's a bad thing. Like, there are many different political traditions absolutely. in, in the UK. So it's <laughs> just not one of which we are part. <laughs> it plays an important role in the Constitution, like um, self-enrichment and, and corruption. It's what made this country what it is. Um, but... Um, yeah, again, we've got to find institutional forms that allow mass memberships to get a handle on what what their um, what their leaderships are doing, and to be- basically bring them to to heal in some way, because there is enormous radical potential. I'm convinced. Say, it's sort of, at its core, an, an attempt to look for opportunities for democratization in, in society that, that already exists, and to be able to sort of collectively navigate them. Yeah, I think that would be a that would be a, a tremendous achievement if we could help give some uh, give some sort of degree of insight for people who want to make material changes to to how institutions and places work. Don't necessarily have a huge amount of time, um, but can understand the like the difference it would make if the institutions of the labour movement, for example. Um, were reshaped so that their members were no longer sort of passive subscription payers, um, but were able to engage in substantive decisions about how they operate, what they do, how they spend their money, and so on. You know, we've t- we talked before, I'm sure, um, offline or, or on the podcast about the you know the pressing need for the la- for the labour movement to engage in media production. Mm. A lot of the pathologies that you find in the capitalist media could be addressed and challenged very effectively by quite modest investments in media by organised labour. But organised labour won't do it. They're not, you know, again, the, the reason they're not doing it now is the same reason they weren't doing it 10 years ago. I, mean, I, I think, propose- yeah, we've, we've talked about this before, and I think a, a sort of, I suppose, an upside from one perspective of the aftermath of the last election and since we've been off air, essentially, has, there does seem to have been an increase, impre- my impression, this was something that Dan and I spoke about earlier before we started recording, is that an impression that people have started to, to come to more of a political realisation that this is an intervention that needs to be made, that if in, in, in order to mount any serious political challenge, you need to have that communicative media infrastructure in place. It's not an add-on, it's not like a particular interest it has to be core to that sort of like you were talking about earlier like it has to be co-constituted with with politics it it is the stuff of which potent political and social movements are are built out of um if they're going to have any sustaining um impacts or sense 
virtual purpose. And I, th I do think there's been an, something of an, uh, an increased awareness around that. So we can only hope, I suppose, that um, that's something which finds some sort of political direction and that people who you know, do have some resources might be taking seriously the idea that those may be distributed in, a, in an efficient and, and useful way, or that if that isn't the case, that we can collectively come up with some sort of way of effectively, more effectively moving into this space. And I think that has to be part and parcel of trying to navigate where we are politically, really. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, again, I mean, you know, it was a year ago, just over a year ago, we all trapped around the place trying to get a Labour government elected. I say all of us, but you and I were canvassing. And it was obvious that we were having conversations with people who were just miles away from us because they were just marinating in, in media that we had no hand in. Like we, we just had nothing, no point of connection with them. Yeah. Um, they were too far away from us for us to hope to have a conversation on the doorstep that would change minds. Yeah. And it's not, it's not reasonable to to expect people to do that in six weeks you know you we have to find ways of not only you know frankly we need to find find ways on the left of, of understanding what we're doing better and understanding our case better um but we need media that can reach into social layers that are at the moment wholly owned by the daily mail and the, and the bbc yeah. and say to them actually you know what you're being told is unsafe yeah uh, i agree told and I think it's a really important point you make about it. There's two elements to it, isn't it? There's there's obviously the capacity to send like um, a, a message to people you aren't reaching, but there's also it's also about internal, not internal. Like um, it's it's about building a movement that's actually functional and having the communicative ability to do that. It's about developing an understanding and a message together, rather than like the sort of central laborists left the sort of laborist approach which is always going to be like oh we send out the soldiers with the manifesto you know we, we, we've tried yeah. that and you know we were praying to god that it might avert disaster in last december and it didn't so we're going to have to come up with something new and then hopefully you know um yeah over a year has passed now um and and hopefully we can be making some some useful progress i guess um yeah yeah uh, I, on that note we should um we should call it call it an evening um Indeed. i we were gonna we there were a couple of things we've we haven't spoken about but we leave them wanting more i'd say leave them wanting more um tom this is the end of an era media democracies we're not going to be we're not going to pretend to be a regular podcast because frankly it's it's been always been a bit of a fiction and it's become clear in this year that we're not going to be able to do yeah, um, it's a sustainable like, fiction for a for a period but like well, once once you're only on air every um six months of a year the credibility um, declines but we will um we will take the media democracy project forward um Tom and I together and separately will be working in these issues or on these issues um, until change happens, which may be, may be a while. Um, <laughs> but we're not going to we're not going to give up on this um, on this project yet. So we will um, in the new year be looking at um, creating an online space for the Media Democracy Archive or the, you know, the podcast we've already recorded. We'll do occasional specials and um, yeah, touch wood 
Tom and I will be working on things as well. So um, it's not um, it's not farewell. It's au revoir, as I used to say. Tom, don't 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 because <laughs> I didn't know how to stop. And no, no, I, 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 I thought that was fine. I thought it was I was going to say something like. Um, you know, so it's a sort of farewell from the podcast, but not from the project. And then I was going to wish people a Merry Christmas, but then you sort of threw me with the au revoir, and then I was just, <laughs> I was just <laughs> like rabbit in the headlights, really. Uh, Why is he talking in French? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just changed. I tell you what, it was. It was a very. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't just assume I was frozen then, <laughs> as occasionally <laughs> happens. <to you. laughs> <laughs> um, it was a uh, Beyond the Fringe reference for some reason. I, I mean, that's been on my mind. No, no, um, I, I sort of recognised it on some level, but it just for some reason it just threw me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a terrible way of of ending what has been a glorious, glorious chapter in the history of left media. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Um, do you want to have another run at that? No, I think that's fine. I think that that's on brand. I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, kind of um, thanks for joining us, everyone, and um, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas and a very healthy 2021 touch wood. <laughs>